Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Before we begin, uh, well, a couple of things. You know, I, um, so it's election. Uh, When I'm recording this, the election has not yet been called. It is actually the uh, day after the election. And my question to you is, what's up, Pennsylvania? I mean, seriously, doesn't it seem strange that in this day and age that this should not be so difficult? Anyway, I got to tell you, it's kind of frustrating just to try to understand what the heck's going on when we're like, you know, it's like um, all of these ballots in Philadelphia are being treated as though it's 1776. At any rate, uh, yeah, no insult to those of you who live in Pennsylvania, but uh, clearly there are some bureaucratic issues there and the uh, polling issues need to get improved significantly. Um, And hopefully by the time this podcast airs, we'll actually have uh, an answer to the election. Anyway, uh, before we begin, I do want to remind you um, that there is a website associated with with this podcast, the Wealth Formula podcast, and it's called wealthformula.com. That is where uh, you can download all sorts of free stuff because who doesn't love free stuff? I do. And it's also where you can sign up for a number of our lists, um, webinars, etc. One that I would like you to focus on uh, is the Accredited Investor Group. Now, the Accredited Investor Club, as we call it, Investor Club for short, is where the magic happens, right? I mean, you learn all sorts of stuff here on this show, different you know opportunities. You'll learn about different uh, uh, strategies, et cetera. But if you are an accredited investor, and what that means is uh, for the last uh, two years in anticipation of, of consistency in the future, you make at least $200,000 uh, per year or $300,000 of filing jointly, or you have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence. Now, that definition has expanded a little bit. I think if you have various... Uh, financial credentials, you know, like I think if you're an RIA or something or, you know, whatever, look it up. But for the most part, it's the financial stuff that qualifies you as an accredited investor. And if that is you, sign up for Investor Club because that's where the magic happens. And as we head into 
the last couple months of this year, we have lots of magic going on, lots of it. So don't be uh, left on the sideline wondering why you're paying as much tax as you do or making less money on your investments than you do. Join the club, Investor Club. Now, as far as the topic of today's show, let me just begin with saying that you know, if you know me, you know that I believe boring is good, okay? And I will tell you to beware of shiny objects. I've been there. And when it comes to investing, you know, boring is good, beware of shiny objects. Those are words that I generally live by now as I am deep into my 40s. Because what I realize is that when I keep true to this wisdom, I have never lost money. I just never have. Now, that doesn't mean I've never lost money because I don't always stick to those words of wisdom, especially, you know, a decade ago. You know, remember, for those of you who've been listening to me, if you've been listening to me for a long time, you know my story. Before I became a boring uh, guy who deals in domestic real estate for the most part, I was a flaming entrepreneur. I acted on every good and bad idea that I could possibly think of. And in the process, you know, this is after residency, like almost like one of those kids who comes out of, you know, Catholic school and goes crazy or something like that. I was like one of those, you know, I was like a repressed uh, surgical resident going crazy with entrepreneurial ideas. And in the process of following those shiny objects, I made millions of dollars with some of those startups. But the problem was that I lost millions of dollars with just a few bad decisions. And listen, it was all exciting, uh, but it was not terribly profitable. I mean, listen, I did fine, but it didn't end up being that profitable. Certainly not when I realized that a few years back after losing a ton of money, you know, in those endeavors, those you know, those business uh, ventures that the bulk of my net worth was preserved really only because of the fact that as a side dot, as a just being a good investor, doing what I thought I should and listening to my dad type of thing, I bought these apartment buildings um, in Chicago. I would buy at least one a year. And luckily, uh, I had been doing that for a few years. And when everything else crumbled, guess what? Guess what? Survived. Yep. The boring stuff. Those apartment buildings I bought while I lived in Chicago saved me. And while not all real estate investments grow by, you know, 500% plus uh, in returns, uh, in three to four years, like mine did. I mean, I, I admittedly, there's a little bit of luck there too. Um, you know, you can pretty much count on residential real estate, most residential real estate, uh, to be fairly safe in competent hands. And I emphasize competent hands. That's really, really important. Now, boring stuff like real estate is though, in the end, it's a little bit of a slow burn for creating wealth. It doesn't mean that you can't grow pretty quickly. I mean, we can amplify that growth even more 
through velocity, right? We can invest in value-add projects like those that we're doing with Western Wealth, uh, for example, in, in our investor club um, that, you know, quickly refi and, and uh, recycle capital. There's one uh, investor who in the last six years had invested $750,000 over a period of five, six years just by small allocations, and that principal has gone up to $4 million in doing that in, in just six years. So it can be done. It can, uh, in this sort of more uh, relatively boring world of real estate that we have, if you have the right model, the right team. However, it is pretty unlikely that most of the time you're going to end up with a true 10 bagger uh, on any individual real estate project, right? You're not going to invest a hundred grand and come out with a million on one project. It's going to be, you know, you're going to go in and out of deals. You're going to refi, you're going to reinvest. You're going to do all that stuff, but a 10 bagger to get a thousand percent plus returns uh, from one deal probably ain't going to happen. Now, what do you need to do to do that kind of thing? If you really want it, well, you're going to need to do something a little riskier, like a startup of some kind. And uh, or or something else risky because risk is ultimately what you know makes makes those bigger chunks of money. But is it really prudent? I mean, to to even really be going down that road. After all, if you're already a professional, you're making a half million dollars a year, a million dollars per year. I mean, do you really want that kind of risk in your life? Do you want that sort of anxiety? I don't know. For most people, the answer is no. No is, and, and that's good. That's not a bad thing at all. It's, uh, you know, if you're already making that much money, you have the potential to make quite a bit more money in the next 10 years uh, with the, at the pace that you're going. But what if you want to go from being a person, you know, who puts a zero at the end of their net worth, adds a zero, I should say, and goes from 2 million to 20 million or 5 million to 50 million, well, if you really want to do that and do it pretty quickly, well, you are going to need to be involved with some kind of what we call asymmetric risk. In other words, you know, you uh, you invest in something that is either going to may you know end up losing everything, or you may end up making a lot of money on it. Now, if you've got the money to do it, it might make sense. To take five to ten percent of your net worth and shoot for the stars, right? I mean, why not? If you lose it, you can afford it. That's the only reason to do this. If you can't afford it, don't do it. Okay, but you know, in, in some cases, it can take off, and it can, it can be life changing. So, you know, we've talked about this kind of thing before. I mean, listen, that's why I invest in things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Myself, I mean, I don't really think of them as investing as much as me speculating, certainly um, on something that has asymmetric risk. Um, you know, people who bought Bitcoin, you know, nine, 10 years ago, of course, I mean, they were buying pizzas for thousands of Bitcoin, and now those are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, those people, some people got really lucky. But, you know, that kind of crazy profit is extraordinarily rare. And I don't think it's a smart idea uh, to go on uh, unicorn hunting necessarily and try to, you know, find the next uh, Facebook, Amazon or Bitcoin or whatever. 
But, you know, listen, there are more modest levels of asymmetric risk. Even asymmetric risk has, like, you know, uh, the potential of being systematized. Um, And that's essentially what an angel investor fund does. And uh, I thought it would be a good idea for that to be something that we mentioned on this podcast. And that's what we're going to talk about this week on uh, Wealth Formula Podcast. So if you're tired of the boring stuff um, that we do in Investor Club uh, and want to spice up your life, your investing life, um, you're going to want to listen to this interview when we come back with Tom Wallace of Florida Funders. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Tom Wallace. Tom is a 40-year veteran of technology startups, both as a founder and an investor, and after multiple successful exits, most recently selling Vector Learning for $268 million. He's now the managing uh, partner at Florida Funders, which is a hybrid of venture capital fund and uh, angel investor network focused on finding, funding, and building the next generation of breakout technology companies in Florida. Tom, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Buck, thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be here, and uh, uh, thanks for uh, hosting. Yeah, of course. And, you know, why don't we start out, you know, this is a um, sort of a different area for us, but why don't, why don't you just start out a little bit by talking about your background? I know we mentioned that you've been a, a tech guy for your, you know, your whole life, I guess, for the most part, your, your professional life. Talk a little bit about that and, you know, how you ended up, uh, I guess, from being on the front lines as maybe a, uh, an actual startup guide ultimately uh, on the angel investor side. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I come from a blue collar family. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. And uh, so when I got out of college, it was 1980. And if you think about that time, it was kind of the dawning of the microcomputer or personal computer revolution. Mm-hmm. And um I worked for a couple of years for a fortune 500 company, Alcoa. My father said it's the only real job I ever had. And then at the age of 23, my best friend and I started our first company. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started a company in 
uh, person, the personal computer space and had no idea what we were doing. We were young, we were green. Mm-hmm. It wasn't back then, Buck, it wasn't like today where there's all these incubators and accelerators and all these mentors and so many people you can get help starting, you know, an entrepreneurship is such a, you know, a cool thing and such a hip thing. Uh, back then it was something that not a lot of people were doing. And most of the, most of the kids I went to college with were looking to go work for IBM or some fortune 500 company, but it was really a special time. And uh, we got bit, you know, got bit by the entrepreneurial bug. And if you think back every so often, game changing technology comes along. And, and certainly the late seventies, early eighties, that was the case with a personal computer. If you think about it, up until sure. that time, the only people that had access to computers were universities, large corporations or, or pretty good sized companies. And they were big computers, they were expensive and they took a team of geeks to program them. Yeah. And that all changed in the late seventies with Apple and IBM introduced their first personal computer in 1981 and compact computer and all that. And it really, now every person, every small business could have a computer and the software that came along with it from people like Bill Gates and, and, and Mitch Kapoor of Lotus one, two, three, they came along with it. You didn't any longer have to be a, a programmer or a geek to figure out how to use this. So we started our business and that was our first company. We exited that about eight years later, got it about 20 million in sales and, and then kind of been doing it ever since. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been an entrepreneur. I've been on the field as, as I, I kind of look at, I, I've been the quarter, I was the quarterback for many years and, and um, you know, living the daily grind and fight of being an entrepreneur. Right. Got it. And then, you know, now you're one of the coaches, so to speak, right? I mean, you're typical. And I like being on the sidelines at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So, uh, you know, we talked a little bit offline about my uh, audience and where, you know, we tend to be for the most part, um, you know, alternative asset investors, investors who are looking for different things, uh, generally, you know, heavily in real estate and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, a lot of the nomenclature, maybe for this area is going to be a little bit foreign, uh, maybe just from an educational standpoint, maybe kind of, if you would, you know, um, you know, you hear a lot of uh, different types of things, uh, words thrown around like angel investing and venture capital and private equity uh, within technology. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe, uh, you know, kind of where, where you're focused? Yeah, sure. So I, I kind of look at it in stages, so early, early stage, you know, say, Buck, you were going to start a company, a technology company tomorrow, and you needed to raise a few hundred thousand dollars to get it going. Um, the first thing you would probably do is go out to your family and friends and get them to invest. So that's kind of very, very early stage, probably pre, you probably don't have any revenue, no customers. It's just an idea. The next stage is, is angel investing. And that's when you typically get a little bit past that family and friends. Maybe you've got some customers now, you've got a real product, you go out to that group. And these are kind of, and that, and, and angels have changed over the years, but you know, many of us do it professionally. So these are more sophisticated investors. They do a lot of deals. They see a lot of deals. And we'll talk more about that later. Then if you're successful, if your success continues, you continue growing, you get bigger. Now you're looking to, in that angel round is typically maybe, 500,000 to a million, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more, maybe a little less. Now you're ready for, you know, a more institutional round or series a, these rounds tend to be more like two to 3 million to 10 million amount amount that you're raising. That's venture capital still early, but you've got customers, you've got some traction and, mm-hmm. and, um, 
And then, um, you know, and that really from venture capital, private equity is even later stage. And the difference, in, and I spent the last kind of 10 years of my career uh, running private equity companies, working a lot with private equity guys. That's tend to be, that tends to be later stage companies. They're profitable. They put a lot of leverage on them. So they, the private equity companies typically put a lot of debt on these companies. So there has to be that cash flow and EBITDA to, to, to yeah. make that happen. And, and so private equity guys are looking for two, three, four X returns on their companies, mm-hmm. maybe greater than when we exited Vector Solutions, my last company, I think our last private equity round, we provide our investors about eight or nine times their money back. Um, venture capital is a different game. They, they know they're going to invest in, and by, by the way, private equity guys, nothing's going to zero. They're not investing in companies that are going to zero. I mean, once in a while it happens, but it's a rarity mm-hmm. where venture capital is a little different game and, you know, and it depends on where you're playing it. Cause if you're playing it in New York or Silicon Valley, it's a different game than you're playing in Florida. But typically we're, we're banking on a certain percentage of our companies going to zero mm-hmm. uh, that they're just not going to be successful. And, you know, some we're going to get our money back and we're going to make our, our money on kind of the top third. That's how we look at it. Florida funders, a third, a third, a third, but you know, the, you know, the folks out in the Valley probably look at it more like, you know, investing in 10 companies, nine are going to zero. One's going to be a unicorn and they're going to make all the returns on the one company. So, you know, it varies a little differently with, you know, where you're playing ge- geographically and what you're, what were you doing? But that, that kind of is how we look at that paradigm of, you know, stages of investing in venture capital versus private equity. Obviously, and you're talking about, you, you sort of alluded to it a little bit, but you know, if, if the, the tech private equity folks are looking to return, you know, um, I think, what did you say? Uh, you know, maybe four, uh, up to eight three times, or four X, three or four, three or four times, five, uh, over a period of, of how long, like a decade or something like that? Yeah, or? Five to 10 years. I mean, the returns, typically they invest the money over a period of about three or four years. And then the returns start coming in shortly after that. Mm-hmm. And they're out by usually like 10 years. Right. And then, and then with angel, so what's the compelling element that you like, and maybe investors should know about your, uh, your, you know, your space, which is, uh, you know, the angel investing, which is really the earliest, uh, I mean, after friends and family, right? So it's certainly the highest risk. Uh, yes. But um, yeah, so what do you just like the asymmetric uh, uh, <laughs> nature of that? Or well, it's risk reward. So um, you know, I, I will admit, I personally am a little bit of a deal junkie. But you don't have to be. Yeah. Um, if you look at some of the research, um, we would I would never suggest anybody that is you know as they look at their asset allocation across their investments that angel investing should be a large portion of it. It is for me because it's what I do for a living. So maybe it's sure. 20% of my net worth, but 10%, whatever. Um, but typically it's, it's a small sliver, two, 3% for an investor. But if you do it right, uh, angel investing can, and, and has historically outperformed every other asset class, including uh, venture capital and private equity. Uh, that is research coming out of the Angel Capital Association of America, so the problem is most people don't, don't do uh, annual investing correctly. We call this the five D's of angel investing. So diversity, deal flow, due diligence, domain expertise, and discipline. So the first mistake most angel investors make, I'd use my brother as an example. My brother's a very successful software uh, CEO. He sold his last company for $1.6 billion. And I said to him one day, Tim, you know, what about angel investing? He said, ah, I've done that two or three times. I went to zero. That doesn't work. 
Well, you really can't do it two to three times because the odds are against you. You might as well go to the casino. You really need to be a, do a, build a portfolio, a diversified portfolio like you have to in most investing. Uh, we say 10 to 15 companies you should invest in uh, to really you know, have enough diversity. Secondly is deal flow. How many deals do you look at to invest in each one? Again, looking at my brother, I'm like, Tim, well, how many deals did you look at to do these two or three deals? He's like, well, I just looked at those two or three. Like, you know, at, at Florida Funders and Venture Capital, we'll look at 50 deals to do one. So we're highly selective and we're, you know, we like to believe we're getting the best of the best. And then due diligence is how much research and digging in did you do in your process? And a lot of research on this, 20 plus hours is, you know, really what you should do to maximize your potential returns. At Florida Funders, every company we do, we have more like 80 to 100 hours of due diligence. And this is everything, but from digging into the, the founders and their background, their experience, to talking to those early customers, asking about the product, why they buy it, how important it is, is it nice to have, is it a have to have? Um, we really get into in their technology, what's their technology stack look like, what's their IP. So that's a big part of it. And then domain expertise, and this is investing in what you know. You're, you're, you're a doctor, right? You're a surgeon. So if you were looking to invest in a medical device company, you would know a lot more about that than me. So with us with and Florida Funders, we invest in soft, SaaS software companies, software as a service. We invest in cybersecurity, FinTech, EdTech, digital health, areas that all of me and my partners have backgrounds in. So we're investing in what we know. And then the last thing is discipline. To be a good investor, I would argue real estate, I don't care what you're sure. investing. You got discipline. You got you to come up with your, your, your thesis and you got to stick to it. Yep. And the biggest thing we see in angel investing or I see in angel investing, the biggest mistake people make is FOMO. They invest because all their friends are investing and they don't want to miss out on this deal. That is not a good reason to invest. And um, what we found is if you're disciplined and you follow those other four D's in that process and do that over and over again, that you're going to be successful. And that this can be a very not only successful asset class from a return on investment standpoint, but also fun. I mean, think about it. We'd like to say we get to go to work every yeah. day with these young, talented, smart people who are trying to change the world. What could yeah. be more fun than that? Yeah. Uh, let's, you know, exploring some of those D's for a moment. One of them I'm thinking about here, as you mentioned, deal flow. And I, now you're in Florida. Um, yes. When I'm, uh, if I'm a, you know, a software developer and I've got something I'm excited about, um, are, am I going to go to Silicon Valley or, I mean, so how, how does, how does that factor into this in terms of affecting your deal flow? Is it, um, do you see some advantages in being, you know, on the other coast or uh, how's it, how, uh, how, uh, what's that been like in your experience? Yeah, we, we do see some advantages and, and Florida has, is a very unique state. We're the third most populous state in the country growing rapidly. We have great tax laws. We're a very pro-business state, uh, very unlike California in a lot of ways. Now, again, they play a different game. It's really not California. It's Silicon Valley and San Francisco. Right. I mean, by the way, all the venture capital invests in the United States goes into 60% of it goes into four little micro markets. 20% goes in Silicon Valley, 20% San Francisco, 10% Boston, 10% New York. So 40% goes to the rest of the world. We have in Florida over the last decade, really great success stories in technology. Companies like Chewy.com, JetSmarter, Fanatics, Nobefore, ConnectWise. These are all unicorn companies built here in Florida 
where the people, the entrepreneurs didn't leave here to go to Silicon Valley. They could have, but they didn't. And we're seeing more and more of that. In fact, we're seeing the opposite happen, Buck, where we're getting calls from from founders who are saying, we're getting out of the Valley. We're getting out of San Francisco. It's too expensive. To, the talent, Google and Facebook are sucking up all the talent. They, they pay them. And they, we can't compete with them. And we're looking for a pro-business state to come to. And in the past, you know, when that happened, it was more, it was mostly Austin, Texas that benefited from that and Colorado, places like Boulder and Denver. But now we're seeing it in Florida and it's exciting. And, you know, we have a lot to offer these founders. We have 45 incubators and accelerators across the state. We have a lot of support systems for entrepreneurs and we're a very pro pro business state. So it's exciting. And then the other thing that's exciting from an investor standpoint is the valuations. You know, companies in, in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, you know, they're, they don't have any revenues. They have an idea and they're worth $10 million. Uh, you know, in Florida, most of the companies we invest in already have revenues, already have customers. Some, you know, the revenues might be 50,000 in annual recurring revenue up to maybe 500,000. But we can invest in them in a valuation of, you know, pre- pre-market valuation, maybe 5 million, 3 million, 7 million. So we don't need them to be a unicorn for us to have a very, um, successful exit for us and for our, our fellow investors. And we can get, you know, 10 X, 20 X, 30 X returns with a company that's exiting at a hundred million dollars, which mm-hmm. is in the tech world is not, not a huge exit today. Tell me how it works in terms of a typical, I mean, uh, my, uh, you know, my listeners are used to, you know, the types of real estate, private equity, particularly our accredited investor groups and things like that. But, um, how does a fund like this work? Is it, you know, a typical two and 20 type, uh, type, uh, structure, um, you know, and, uh, if you could kind of talk about that and, you know, maybe also some historical in terms of what you're seeing, um, you know, obviously not, not promising anything future wise, but what, what kinds of results have you guys had? Yeah. Um, so yes, we're two and 20. Our fund is a two and 20 fund. So it's very typical, you know, of yeah. many funds. So 2% um, annual, uh, basically uh, under management and then 20% profit, right? And yeah. then, right, oh. got it. So that's pretty standard. And then um, and then in terms of Flora Funders, what kind of, you know, structures are you looking at? Are, are you doing, are these regulation D exemption type things? Or, I mean, are they 506Cs or are they crowdfunding or, you know, reg crowdfunding or how, how are you structuring these? Yeah. So the way we work, if we're a little different animal. Uh, we'd like to think we have a pretty unique model is once a company makes it through our vetting process and we say, okay, we're going to invest in you. Our fund will put in the first, say we're going to raise a million dollars for this company. Our fund will put in 500,000. And then we take the 500,000. We go out to our crowd curated, uh, accredited investors. We only deal with accredited. Uh, so we're 506 C. Mm-hmm. Yep. 506 C. Right. And, um, and then the crowd will fill in the rest. And sometimes it's a little light. Maybe the fund will make up the difference. Many times it's oversubscribed and we'll raise more for the founder or we'll, we'll just shut it off. So, um, you know, again, we're a little, little bit different. So your, your fund, it's sorry to interrupt, but you're saying that each opportunity you're doing separately, you're not doing it as a portfolio, like a fund, uh, you're doing each business separately. So we have two things. We have a fund of our own that uh-huh. many of our just invest in the fund and we invest the money for them. But then we have this curated crowd of accredited investors who invest alongside our fund. Mm-hmm. So like myself personally, I'm an investor, I'm an investor in our fund. 
I invest in almost every deal we do as well. And I'll vary what I put in the deals based on what I think, what I like, you know, that, that sort of thing. Now we have some, we have many investors that are just in our fund. They love what we're doing. They're really excited about it. They're like, you know, hey, we don't know technology. I don't know technology. I don't have time to look at it. Even though you guys do all the due diligence and put it all up on the portal and I don't really have to do a lot of work. You kind of take the heavy lifting out of angel investing for me. Mm-hmm. I don't have the time to do it or I don't know tech. So why don't I just give you the money and you guys invest it for me? And so we're on our second fund. The answer, your, go back to your question about our returns. We're just having our first exits from our first fund, which is about four years old. We had, we'll have, we've had two in the last week. And um, one was 1.8x times your money back. And one was a little over two. Mm-hmm. So those are moderate returns in our world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we're playing, you know, we're, we, we expect to have some of those, but we also expect to have 10 X, 20 X, 30 X deals. And then we expect to have zeros too. Right, right, right. Got it. Got it. Um, in terms of right now, uh, in, in this day and age, specifically talking about a recessionary environment, a pandemic environment. How is this all affecting your business and, and uh, uh, you know, your businesses that you invest in, uh, you know, capital, um, all of these things? Yeah, it's been interesting because, you know, if you look back at 2009, 2010, the Great Recession, the one area of investing that really never slowed and, and took was, was early stage tech investing and, and angel investing. It didn't really have a mature, much of an effect on it. Um, we're kind of seeing that we're still doing deals. We're very active or, you know, lots of deal flow. Um, you know, some of our portfolio companies were severely affected by COVID, but with the PPP loans and we work with our companies, we don't just invest in them and leave them alone. We take a board seat, we get involved, we coach them, we provide introductions to them. We help them in any way we can be successful. Many of them got PPP loans that are going to be forgiven or, you know, you know, that really helped them a lot. Uh, some of them pivoted. Um, and, and most of them have really bounced. We, you know, we lost one that was a restaurant tech company, which, you know, obviously that's not the space you want to be in in this downturn mm-hmm. in COVID days. Um, but they weren't doing so great anyway. Um, but a lot, you know, some, you know, some of our companies are K to 12 education companies. Most of them have really bounced back now. I mean, they took a hit, but they bounced back. We have companies in the healthcare space that, you know, they are involved a lot with elective surgery, they obviously took a hit, but now they bounce back. So it's been interesting. It's been, you know, we, we, we hunkered down there with our companies for a while and said, Hey, let's, let's, you know, we, our message to them was cut your burn, preserve cash. You don't know when you're going to be able to raise money again, extend your runway and make sure you can live the, the fight your way through this. And most of them have, have done that very successfully. Where does, um, for, for your typical investor, and I think you kind of had mentioned uh, a little bit in terms of allocation, but, um, you know, if you look at a portfolio of, you know, a hundred percent of your investable assets, um, what do you, I mean, what sort of a rule of thumb people, uh, I'm, I'm maybe not, you know, the Tom Wallace's of the world where you're in the middle of this, but if you're looking to get exposure, what, what do you tell people? What is sort of the rule of thumb on these types of things, whether it be, uh, you know, direct technology investments or, or angel investments, or how do you look at it or how do you suggest people look at it? You know, I, I think it's 5% or less, um, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. 
but you know, the, there's, there's something that's happened out there. If you think about technology, the days of buying uh, Amazon and Apple at a couple hundred million dollar valuation, running that to a trillion dollars are over. Facebook went public. Their valuation was what? 70 billion. Um, Uber went public valuation, 40, 50 billion. These companies, cause there's so much venture capital money out there. Mm-hmm. These companies are waiting so long to go public to yeah. really get phenomenal returns. Angel investing is, is how you're going to do it. Cause you know, again, companies are waiting so long to go public. And so we, you know, again, if you do the, if you do the five D's and you diversify, um, you know, there, there's a, there's an opportunity for, for great returns here. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're only seeing that trend more and more and it's becoming more exciting with all the changes to crowdfunding and all the rules that came out in, you know, when crowdfunding was first uh, made legal back with six or seven years now. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting space and it, it can be one again that you can have a lot of fun with and, you can really see some exciting companies and meet some crazy founders because yeah, sure. great founders get a tad crazy. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, but yeah, I'd say 5% or less. I mean, that's typically what we would, our number would be. So give us, you know, give us, uh, you know, before we go, maybe just sort of in general, like for Florida funders, that's, that's what it's called. And, and what's the website, by the way? Is it Florida, Florida funders.com. Okay. And that's funders as an F U N D E R S floridafunders.com. Yeah. So if you kind of gave us a, you know, your, you know, your elevator pitch, uh, so to speak on, on Florida funders and, and why to look into it more and how you're different from the other angel groups, what would you, uh, what would you say to that? Uh, our secret sauce is a couple of things. One is deal flow. We've been named by CB insights and PitchBook both those organizations as the most active VC in the Southeast, the most active venture capitalist in Florida. So we are out and about in the tech community down here. We're very well known every month, 50 to hundred companies just go to our website and apply for funding. So we're looking at way more deals. And as a result, we think we're getting access to the best deals. The second part of our secret sauce is the extensive, extensive due diligence we do. Even more, we invest alongside some Silicon Valley venture capitalists, some New York venture capitalists, and we often have co-investors in our deal. And I would argue that almost nobody does the level of due diligence we do. And that's everything from really getting to know the the founders. A lot of this is betting on the jockey um, to, you know, those early customers and interviewing them to uh, plugging in, uh, a subject matter expert and we tap into our network of 1500 investors and, you know, we're looking at a health tech digital play, you know, we're pulling people that have extensive domain expertise who can really work in that space, who have years of experience and they really help us evaluate these deals. And once we invest, they help these companies advise them and, and mentor them and coach them. So that, that's kind of what makes us different here at Florida funders and if you, if you think about, you know, where the future is for, for so many states and obviously, you know, we're, we're focused on Florida. It's, you know, we, we like to say we're, we're looking to change Florida from a state. We want Florida to be as known, if not known more for technology and innovation than we are today for the mouse and tourism and strawberries. Sure. Or orange. sure. Got it. Well, listen, Tom, it's been uh, great and very uh, helpful and educational for 
our uh, my audience here in it, it, it's again it's Florida funders like fun having funders dot uh, com Florida funders dot com and uh, and uh, Tom I want to th- thank you again for being on the show and and uh, maybe have you on again sometime and let us know how one of your you know your next fun does. Will do, Buck. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. All the best to you and to your listeners. And uh, I've really enjoyed spending this time with you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Now it was a little something different, right? Uh, of course, uh, I'm a big fan of boring these days, but, you know, uh, it is it is sort of exciting, especially maybe if you live in Florida. I mean, look up Tom and see if there's uh, something uh, something interesting you might want to get involved with. Listen, before we go, there's a few things I want to mention. First of all, uh, if you have not done so, please go to wealthformula.com and there's an easy way for you to leave me a five-star review on iTunes. This really helps. That along with subscribing to the podcast really helps when it comes to ranking. Our, Our podcast has been going up in the ranks a lot lately and it continues to help, you know, get people involved, more people find us. Um, helps more people, you know, makes our community stronger. And we can also leverage that to get, um, you know, continue our high quality of guests that we have on this show. So go to wealthformula.com and where it says, you know, give us a five-star rating. Uh, please go ahead and do that. Um, also, uh, if you have not noticed, uh, we are doing have an Ask Buck show probably next week. So if you get a chance, please make sure uh, to respond to one of the Ask Buck emails or just go to wellformula.com and you see the Ask Buck thing there and you can uh, actually you can actually re- record a question for me. Finally, a few reminders, uh, just, you know, we're, we're wrapping up, you know, the end of the year is around the corner here. And so we got to start thinking about tax time. Um, it's another reason for those of you who are accredited investors to seriously think about joining Investor Club. There's lots of opportunities uh, in, you know, with bonus depreciation, whether that's through, uh, you know, apartment buildings or, uh, you know, through through our ATM fund. Um, we've got some webinars coming up on um, some land conservation options. Um, there's also, I'll be sending out a webinar uh, to our credit investor group on captive insurance and also uh, oil and gases, which is one of the few things that you can take uh, W-2 uh, losses against. Anyway, make sure to join the club if you are an investor, a credit investor, and uh, and so you don't miss out on all this great information. And if you're not, work hard and become an accredited investor. Uh, anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Jaffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.